We're going to continue, and we've been doing, I've been teaching through the, um, the, uh, the Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes, or the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew chapter 5. So you can turn with me uh, in your Bibles over there. And I'm going to state the obvious. This is something I never do. It was something I was taught never to do when I was started preaching and pastoring. Never draw attention to the obvious. It's like if, you know, something's off, you don't have to say, well, man, the keyboardist was really off tonight. I mean, I mean that sound guy was really off his game tonight. <laughs> but, but we know we've got a, a, a little fewer, uh, we've got some people out, we're traveling. And, but, you know, the word of God is still the same. I never look at it as whether we have a, a house full or whether we've got people missing or whether it's just a couple of us, okay? But you don't want to unlo- unload everything on just two people. All right, but so we got some people here tonight, and I want to share the word of the Lord with you. I got some new glasses today. Yeah, and uh, my prescription hadn't changed in like forever. I started wearing progressive lenses about 10 years ago, and you know, you can see here, you can see there, and then you can see satellites in the sky. So these, these, my prescription hadn't changed in forever, and it's like they, I started noticing my last pair, I would have to take them off because things were getting blurry. These are a little stronger, so when I was walking out of the, uh, the uh, place today to pick them up, it was just like, you know, if you, how many of you have progressives? Yeah. They take a little bit to get used to. First day you're going <laughs> over everything. But uh, I got an offer from the government because my... my, my uh, my glasses are strong now. They're talking about strapping me to the bottom of a plane where I can spy on countries with these things. <laughs> All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be continuing in. I know last time I spoke, I, I didn't finish the Beatitudes. And I tried to bring the last one into this, and it would just wasn't fitting. So I know we'll go back to that one later, but I wanted to go to verse 13. There's something I was really uh, feeling on my heart to share. And um, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse number 13, it says, and I'm reading from the New King James, uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing, it's good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your lights so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Can you say amen to the word of the Lord? So we've been talking, uh, last few times I've been speaking, and, um, and I'm just always thankful for the opportunity to be able to share the word of the Lord here. Um, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and the Matthew chapter 5 uh, through ver- uh, chapter 7 contain what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And these chapters consist of the most concise and definitive statements of Jesus' teaching, They're clearly contrasting his declaration of the kingdom of God and how it differed radically from what passed as religion in his day and in our day. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is also referred to the kingdom manifesto. Now, if you study the Bible, you're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, if you do a comparison to where Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the law, there's a lot of comparisons that you can do there. 
Moses went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain. Moses came back with the law. Jesus comes back with something that is, uh, uh, exceeds the law, something that was greater, a greater call to love. So there's some, very, some things that are very, uh, can be compared there. This is like Jesus coming up and saying, uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear him say things like, you have heard it said, but I say. And he's definitely referring back to the law of Moses when he says those things. So this was called Jesus' manifesto, and a manifesto is a statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or views of its user. A manifesto is where you put it all out there and let people grasp it, ponder it, and ultimately understand it. And these are just, um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, if you really look at it, these were not just a bunch of nice words that Jesus said to make people feel good. I mean, look at some of the things that he said. These statements, if you really dig into them, are some very powerful, powerful statements and what it really costs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to transition from the Beatitudes into the application of discipleship. A disciple is someone that is simply under the discipline of another. So Jesus used the analogy of salt and light to teach us three things. How do you like my shirt? You like my shirt? <laughs> I was looking for a little, uh, you see, is it up there? Yeah, I was looking for the, yeah, see, but yeah. And I was looking for that logo and they said, oh, they make it in a t-shirt. I wonder if I can buy it if I get it by Saturday night. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> but it talks about our identity, our purpose, and our goal. Our identity and our purpose and our goal. When Jesus starts off with this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, he says he makes our identity known. He starts off with two words. You are. You are. You, the one being addressed, and he wasn't speaking to some random group of people that just happened to follow him. He was speaking directly to his disciples. Now, when you study the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called his disciples to him, but he, the things that he shared with them, though they were directed specifically for the disciples, he said them within earshot of the crowd that gathered around as well. They could hear what he was saying. But this was exactly what he was wanting from his disciples. He wasn't telling the world, this is what I expect out of you. He wasn't telling the crowd, this is what I expect out of you. He was telling his disciples, this is what I want from you. This is directed at you. So if you're a believer, if you consider yourself a disciple of Christ, then this is for you. This is what Jesus expects out of you. This is, he says, you are. That is the one being addressed. You. And as we read it today, if you call yourself a disciple, he's talking to you. He uses the word are. Now, Charles gets up here and uses grammar and English and all that, and I threw something in there, but it's not like I have a command of it. You know, to me, England is a foreign country, so English is a foreign language, all right? Now, when we were in Germany, we pastored in Germany, when I would get on the phone and they, you know, we'd always have to ask the operator, you say, Sprechen Sie English, uh, and I would always say, and what, what, what I always default to do is Sprechen Sie Amerikanisch, and they say, do, do you, you mean English? No, I mean American. I speak American. <laughs> There's a big difference. <clears throat> so 
this is our, the present tense, second person singular, and present tense plural of be. That is to identify with. You are. You are. This is who you are. You are who? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Think about that. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. The Beatitudes describe the essential character of kingdom citizens, and the metaphors of salt and light indicate the citizens' influence for good as they penetrate our secular culture. This is who you are. God has made you light. God has made you salt with a particular agenda to be go into our world and make a difference, to influence things. This is who we are. We are not to influence the world through secular politics. And I know specifically in our time, I, and, and it troubles me. This is something that personally troubles me. I can't speak for everybody else. I can't speak for the, uh, the management and staff of Cal uh, South Coast Calvary Chapel. Okay? These are my opinions, strictly my opinions. But I, I see evangelical Christianity has gotten so caught up in the political mess that I'm thinking, how in the You have to divorce yourself from this. Politics is not the answer. If you're going to preach politics, preach kingdom politics. Because that's what Jesus did. When they would try to ask him, what do you want? Do you, should we pay taxes or not? Look at this. Render into the sea things that are Caesar's and the things that are God, the things that belong to God. He was making a distinction. There's a world system. There's a world governments. But this is the kingdom. I represent a different ideology. I represent a different worldview than what the world is proclaiming. And when we get caught up in the political chaos of our day, I think sometimes we're doing a disservice because we think that the, the world, that the government can, in the ballot box, can change things. Amen. I know it's quiet. I know. But it, it, it really, really, it's one of those things that bothers me. But we are kingdom citizens. For our true allegiance, hear me when I say this, our true allegiance is not to the United States. And I love being American. I tell you, when you go to Eastern Europe and you come back, the grass looks greener, the sky looks bluer, everything tastes better, and you think, thank God I was born in America. Yes. Amen. Yes. This is the best thing on the block. I've been around the world. This is the best thing on the block. Amen. Warts and all, still the best thing on the block. But my first and foremost allegiance is not to this country. My allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Yes. Yes. I am called first to be a kingdom citizen. That's right. So we cannot look to Washington for the answers. We can't look to Washington, D.C. for the answers. We must look to that city that is four square, whose builder and maker is God. Yes. That's the city that governs us. That's right. Amen. Yes. The Supreme Court justices come and go. But our God is eternal. Elected officials come and go. But I have an advocate who stands before the throne of God continually for my be on my behalf that represents me. Presidents are voted in and out, but our king reigns eternal, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's who I am. That's who I am. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to discipleship. It is making Jesus Christ Lord. And Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21. 
Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So what does it mean to make Jesus Christ Lord? Didn't I, I walk the aisle, or I ran to the altar, or however your religious background was, and you made a commitment. Some of you even signed a card. They may have given you a little slip of paper that you put up in a drawer and you got it somewhere in a Bible in case you need it. It's your bus ticket to heaven. Hang on to it. Don't lose it. <laughs> You're, you, made, you gave your life to Jesus. He made him, you, he, you made him your Lord and Savior. And there's no doubt that we know that Jesus saved us from our sins. He paid the ransom for our sin. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to show us how much he loved us. God gave his very best to show us to what extent he would go to save us. So we know that Jesus is our Savior. So we automatically just say he's our Lord and Savior. But really we mean a lot, he's just, we, we recognize the salvation part of it. But when it comes to the Lord part, we say it because I think we think we understand what it means to make him Lord. But do we really understand what it means to make him Lord? Lord is someone or something that having power, authority, or influence over us. It's a master. Remember we had the, the, the we were fully automated Wednesday night. For you that weren't here, we had uh, automated praise and worship, and we had automated preaching. You know, we had video because Pastor was gone. And one of the things that Pastor Lori was showing was when we forget our phones, and we realize we've lost our phone. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I found you. <laughs> Don't leave me like that. Don't. It's something that influences us. You know, when I was a kid, our cell phone was called a phone booth. That was the cell phone. And if you called home, if there was a problem, you called home at 10 or 11 o'clock, there better be a very good reason why you're calling that late. Right? And people, my wife says, we got to bring our phones. You know, we, we got to have the phone in case something happens. Somebody get in touch with us. What did people do for hundreds of years? <laughs> what did they do for hundreds of years? So being a, having a Lord is someone or something having power or authority or influence over us. And for some people, it's drugs. Some people, it's alcohol. Some people, it's sex. Some people, it is their cell phones. Some people, it's other things. What has sway over you that can control you and be your Lord and master? And you do its bidding. Now, there's a, a, a pastor by, is it Craig Groeschel? Is that how you say it? Groeschel or Groeschel? How was that? I can't ever pronounce it. <laughs> He wrote a book entitled The Christian Atheist. Have you seen that book? The Christian Atheist. The Christian Atheist. That is believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. So what does your life say? Is he master? Is he Lord of all? Or not Lord at all? So being a, a disciple is a radical concept. It is a, an abandonment of self, a denial of self. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if any man comes or anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Being a disciple is a call to live counterculturally from a culture that worships instant gratification, immediate consumption, always wanting more, always seeking faster. That is the world that we live in today. We put something in the microwave and say, man, hurry up. I don't have all 30 seconds to wait on this thing. Wait, a click, 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 click. 30 seconds, two minutes. I got to warm this thing for two minutes? <laughs> Who's got that kind of time? <laughs> so our culture, you know, we get, we get a phone. Oh, we got this phone. We got the XYZ. We got the XYZ, one, two, three. Oh, we got the ultimate XYZ. We got to get it. We don't even get the last one paid for. You get a $300 trade-in if you trade it in and you get a rebate and you get a note and you get a, so look at me, look at me, look at, look at, the, look at what I got, you know. <laughs> we got to have more. It's like we get, you know, and what cracks me up is people say that they don't watch television and you go to their house and they have a 72-inch flat screen in the living room. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, if you're not watching TV, why are you spending so much money? It looks like I would be trying to get my money's worth out of that thing. <laughs> Our culture has mass-produced anxiety. Anxiety medications are flying off the shelves. And I think it's because of what our society is promoting. It's consumption. And discipleship is the remedy to the madness of our world. Discipleship is choosing the long-term process over the short-term gratification. Now, if you've ever bought anything, you know what that means. If you buy something on, they used to call it buying on time. It's buying on credit. Okay? Remember when they first came out with credit cards and you got your first card? It's only $12 a month. When my wife and I first got married, we bought us a washer and dryer set from Sears. It was $12 a month. Yeah, for like 25 years. <laughs> I got a $300, I got a set of wash and dryer that was roughly around 300 bucks for both of them. And it took us forever to pay them things off. Because what it is, is you bought, you got the instant gratification. You got your washer, you got your dryer. But now you're going to have to pay for it. So you can get whatever you want, but understand everything has a price tag attached to it. Everything does. You're going to pay for it sooner or later. So it's better to what? Save your money, do the hard things now, and then later on, hey, I got an extra 12 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it is the choice to develop a lifestyle and values that are opposed to the established culture, and our culture is going just slap crazy. Everything is just topsy-turvy. I, I, I look at what's going on with some school-age kids now in high school. If, if I, back when I was in high school, if some of these kids did the kind of things that I see doing today, I'd have been beaten up every single day. I got beat up. And I walked into a restroom one evening at a church, and there was a group of young boy, men in there, and they all got their cell phones out. And I, I walked in, and I'm like, and I went back outside. I looked at the door. Is this, is this the transgender bathroom? Or, <laughs> and I went in. Oh, no, this is the right bathroom. And I said, okay, girls, you're all pretty. Can you all leave now? Put your phones away. 
<laughs> I want a thing with phones tonight. You notice that? <laughs> We're going to take up an offering of phones tonight. Phone offering. <laughs> it's cho- discipleship is choosing Jesus over the kingdoms of the world. It's choosing trust over fear, growth over comfort, giving over taking, and moving forward rather than standing still. Now, discipleship sounds difficult. It sounds hard. It sounds hard. But then Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, wait a minute. Now, I just read, take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself. This doesn't sound like an easy yoke or a light burden. It doesn't. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen an actual yoke, but a yoke is a farming implement that was used to make work more productive. You take a yoke, you put it on two ox, you put it on two mules, you put it on two horses, and suddenly you have not two separate horses, but now you have synergy. You have more force than two single horses by themselves. You have synergy. And we're able to plow through a field and work, you know, and and do the work and pull a wagon or whatever they were uh, yoked to. There's also yokes that people wore. You ever seen in the movies where the people are running down the street and they've got the yoke on their neck and they've got the two buckets of water? You know, those are things were made to make things more productive. And this idea of being yoked to someone or something, I don't know, to you, but to me it seems a little confining. I got this thing around my neck, and I'm yoked to Jesus, and I can't go anywhere unless Jesus tells me where to go. It sounds a little confining. It seems like it's enslavement. That's what it looks like. That's what it would feel like, and I'm just being honest. That is why when Jesus asks us to be yoked to him, we resist. We resist. We do. We may not just openly say, no, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. But you do it when, when something happens in life and you know you got two uh, uh, opinions or two ways you could do things. There's the right way and then there's the wrong way. And you lean toward the wrong and you know that it's wrong, but you, you, you want to do it anyway. And we resist the Lord. Because we don't want anybody to be the boss of me. And when you totally surrender, that is when it's easy to do what the Lord says, to be his disciple, because it requires total surrender. That is the way of total uh, discipleship. Amen. Number two, our purpose. Our purpose. There's two purposes of salt. Now, you've probably heard analogies. If you've been in church at all during your lifetime, you have heard sermons on salt and light before. You've heard this analogy. But salt has two purposes, and that is to preserve things and to enhance flavor. Two things. Preserve things and enhance flavor. My, now, my family, um, my mom's family moved from, my, my great-grandmother moved Uh, herself and her seven kids from southern Kentucky to Indianapolis in the early 1900s on a wagon, all right? So 
they came up in that time frame. My, my grandfather had never seen electricity in his life until they moved to Indiana. And he was laying in bed one night, and there was a, uh, and I don't know if you've, if you've seen some of these old homes. There used to be just like a cord hanging from the ceiling with a light socket on it. And he saw that thing hanging there, and he didn't know what it was. So he climbs up there, and he sticks his finger in it. He said he didn't know what it was that bit him, but it was right behind him when he jumped out the window and was running down the road. <laughs> so my family grew up with electricity, running water, and all these things. My, my grandparents had it, my, 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 uh, my parents, and I did. And my wife's family, on the other hand, is from South Louisiana. And... I heard him talking one day, my in-laws talking one day, that uh, her grandparents, her grandfather was a bridge tender on the intercoastal canal. And they had a house that sat right down there. And, they, and she said, my mother-in-law said something about my father-in-law had installed the plumbing in the house after they were married. My mother-in-law and father-in-law were married. Now, my in-laws got married in like 1947. So this is like in the early 1950s. They're just putting running water in my wife's grandparents' house. They didn't even have electricity until then. So I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to process this. And I said, how did you preserve anything? What did you do when you, for, to keep things fresh? He said, we, you, we soak it in brine, salt brine, little crocks, and they would just put. And I don't know if you've ever seen meat that's been salted to cure it. It is literally buried in salt. Now, my father-in-law introduced me to salt pork after we got married, my wife and I. And he decides he's going to make some salt pork for us one day. So he goes and he buys it, and you, he, you boil it to get all the salt out. And to them, you know, my, my wife's family grew up, I don't know where she's from, uh, you've, you've heard of Morton Salt. Morton Salt has one of the largest salt dome, domes in the world in Iberia Parish, Louisiana. It's just out of the swamp. There's this huge salt dome. They've been mining salt there for hundreds of years. There used to be a town on top of it. That's where Morton Salt has a big plant. And they moved everybody off. Now it's part of the strategic oil reserve is kept there. And they're still mining salt in there. So my wife grew up with salt on everything. Salt on salt. That's how... And it's like her parents worked for Morton. They retired from Morton. And so he brings this salt pork into the you know, home, and he's boiled all the salt out of it. He fries it up with some potatoes, and he's making a gravy with the fat because salt pork is like fat back. You know, it's got a lot of fat in it. So, and he's going to, he's got potatoes in it because when you go into my in-law's house, you got your carbs on. It was rice with potatoes. <laughs> gravy with, over rice with potatoes in it. And I took a bite of that, and I, I promise you, I have never tasted something so salty in all of my life. It was preserved. So before refrigeration, this is what people, ha uh, would, how they would salt their, uh, would preserve things, because salt inhibits the growth of microorganisms. It inhibits it. You can use salt as an antiseptic. You cut yourself, put some salt in it, it'll draw the infection out. It'll burn, but it will heal. So salt, as, as, as salt preserves, disciples act as a preservative to the world. 
preserving it from evil. And this is why it's ex extremely important that we do not adapt a world view of the worldview of our culture. Mm -hmm. Our culture says uh, down is up, good is bad. You know, the opposite of everything else. We cannot uh, uh, change our worldview. And if there was ever a time that the church needed to say, I've got to stand on what the word of God says, it's now. Yes. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Guess what? Jesus said, "In this, uh, offenses will come. People are going to be offended. Doesn't mean we need to say it and hate and be ugly and rude, but there are sometimes we have to draw a line of this is what the Bible tells us. This is God's perspective on this, and this is where we will stand. Amen. That's what we're called to do. And when it gets to the point that there can't be, you can't tell the church from the world, then we're in really bad shape. Salt enhances, number two, salt enhances flavor. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes. What does this mean that we, we're, we're as salt? It means we bring out the God flavors of the world to the, wor to the world. We bring out God flavors. What are God flavors? It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's long-suffering. It's kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are God flavors. That when people see us behave this way, they can taste and see that God is good. Right. Yes. That God has genuinely done a work in your life. Amen. They know you're Christian, not because you have a Bible on your desk and you tell them, you go to church. But because your life demonstrates a commitment to Jesus Christ. Amen. We are to live out so that the God flavor will draw people to him. Let your life enhance the God flavors. And secondly, Jesus said, we are light. Now, notice these aren't things that he, one day we will be, that one day we hope to attain to be. This is who you are. You are salt and you are light. Light cannot be hidden in darkness. The Bible says, let your light shine. This is a call to be conspicuous. There are no secret agents in God's kingdom. There is no secret service, all right? There is no secret clearance in God's kingdom. God's people are conspicuous. We're called to be light. We're supposed to shine. We're like a city that is set on a hill. You can't hide it. This is who we are. You don't stick a, a light under a, under a bucket or under a bed, but you put it on a light stand, that's where you, we are to live our lives conspicuously that we are Jesus' disciples. There are over 7 billion people in this world that need to see light. So don't keep it to yourself. Shine it. Shine your light. Salt that does not do what it was created to do is worthless. The Bible said when we read in our text tonight, it is good for nothing. Salt that does not do what it was created to do is good for nothing. You can throw it out on the earth. It's not good for the earth. It's not even fit for the manure heap. And what good is a light that's hid under a bushel? Light is meant to illuminate, to direct, to reveal. 
something that salt and light both have in common is they influence. You bring light into a dark room and everyone can see it. You cannot hide a light in a dark room. Everyone will see it. You put salt on food and you can taste it. In this day when so many people are wanting to wear labels to identify them, whether it be their sexual orientation, their political affiliation, or their religious affiliation, our label is I am part of the body of Christ. I am a disciple. I am the church. I am a kingdom citizen. I am salt and I am light. Ballot boxes will never change the world. Religion will never change the world. Only Jesus can change the world. And to influence our world for Christ, we must be called, we must fulfill who we are called to be, and that is we are called to be the body. We are called to be the church. That's who we are. This brings us to our third point tonight, our purpose. I mean, our goal, our goal, I'm sorry. That God be glorified. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Science quiz. Everybody put your books away, take out a sheet of paper. Science quiz. <laughs> what is moonlight? It is a reflection. There's actually really no such thing as moonlight because the moon does not give off any light. The moon only reflects light. It only reflects it. What does it reflect? It reflects the sun. That's what we do. We reflect the sun, S-O-N. We reflect the sunlight. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have life. That's John 8 and 12. Psalm 27 and 1 says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Can people see the sunlight in your life? Are you reflecting the sunlight? And how does our light shine? Remember, I mean, you sang it in Sunday school. Don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. So how does our light shine? It shines by our good works. Ephesians 2 and 10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Titus 2, 14 says, be zealous for good works. Galatians 6 and 9, these are scriptures you can read at home later. Galatians 6 and 9, Acts 10, 38 talks about Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the de devil. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13, verse 13, and 1 Peter 2, 15. Now, it sounds like we're talking legalism. When you start talking works, people say, you start, you're talking legalism now. You're telling people they got to do this, they got to do that to be saved. It's legalism. The Apostle Jacob. It's the Apostle James. Did you know that? His real name was Jacob. It wasn't James. It's translated James because in one, some languages you could translate his name James, but in Spanish you, his name is Santiago, which is a form of Saint Jacob or Yaakov. It's Jacob. Jesus' brother's name was Jacob. We named, him, we named it the book of James because King James kind of financed the Bible 
So we made him the brother of the Lord. <laughs> and the apostle tells us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Jesus said, he who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I would like him to do what? To a man that built a house on a rock. He dug deep and made a good foundation when all of the world and storms of the hurricanes of life came against him. The house still stood. You were created for good works and that the world will see him in us and glorify our Father in heaven. Our identity and purpose is to achieve the goal of God being glorified. The word there that glorified comes from the Greek word doxos, doxosin, doxosin. And it's used two times in the New Testament. And both times it's used in reference to doing good things that bring glory to God. So why does the world need to see the glory of God? Because the world has a, has a bad image, a distorted image of God. People you work with, how do they see God? They see God as grumpy. He's a grumpy old man. He's neurotic. One minute he's loving us, the next minute he's raining fire and brimstone down on us. All right? He's capricious. Today he may be good, tomorrow it just depends on how he feels. He's distant. He's off somewhere out there. He's there may be a God, but it's impossible to really know him. He's unconcerned. If God was really care, cared about the world, why is all of this evil going on? So they think God's unconcerned. Or they think God is reactionary. And you hear this on, on Christian radio and Christian television. Uh, the reason the storm hit is because it's the wrath of God. Because people were uh, throwing straws in the ocean to hurt turtles. <laughs> but this is why we're here. is to give a proper, correct image of God. That's why we come together on Saturday night. It's not just to f sing a few songs. And, and I'll be honest, I like the music. I like the songs. This enhances my worship experience. Yes. But it's not just to sing a few songs. It's not just to hear a, man, that was a good teaching tonight, Pastor Charles. And Pastor Charles really unpacks a verse. I got to tell you that. You know, I've been to some churches where they unpack a, ver a, a verse and it's like they brought an overnight bag. Charles brings a whole set of luggage. <laughs> <laughs> So we're not here just to sing a few songs, hear a teaching, fellowship, eat some pumpkin stuff, and then go home and feel better. Oh man, we had a really good church tonight. That's not why we're here. Our prayer should be, Father, what can I hear tonight that will change my life starting this week? What am I going to hear that I can see Jesus more clearly? That's what this book is about. It's not telling us, do this, don't do that. This is not a rule book. This is a book, everything in this book points to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to him. Everything in the New Testament points to him. We interpret this scripture to reveal Christ in every verse. How can I see Jesus in this verse? How does this verse, how does this teaching reveal Jesus that I can take these words and apply them to my life and that my life will be changed by it? That's why we're here. That's what the whole purpose is. If you want to join a club, there's the Moose Lodge. There's the Elk Lodge. 
This is not a club. This is the church, and we're here to make a difference in the world. I want people to, to genuinely come to a loving knowledge of God, that God really cares about them, and that God wants to give them a purpose and a hope in life.